Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Daniel chapter 3. On my reckoning, it's been about four weeks since we've been in the book of Daniel. And so I want to refresh your memory as to where we left off. You recall in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had a terrifying dream. And um, he, as a result of having this terrifying dream, he calls in all the folks, all the folks who could possibly be of help uh, to help calm his anxiety and his terror, and no one can. In fact, uh, he wants them to tell the content and then interpret it without giving them the content. He's told that he's asking something that is frankly irrational, that no one can do, um, that, that, that no one who is not... Uh, one of the gods could do, he says. And of course, he issues this decree in fury to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And regrettably, that includes uh, Daniel and his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel gets word of this plan. He asks, why is it so urgent? What's the problem here? He asks for an audience with the king after going back and talking it over um, he actually has a vision, a vision in the night where God reveals to him the content and interpretation of this dream. He goes before Nebuchadnezzar. He gets a hearing, and the king says, Are you able to discern the dream, give its interpretation? And he says, Oh, yes, yes, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There is a God of heaven who reveals mysteries. And he goes on to tell him that what he saw was an image of this massive statue and if you can look back at uh, chapter 2 just for one moment there, you will see in uh, verse 32, the head of this image, this carved image, this statue was of fine gold. The head was gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then what happens is there is a stone that's not part of the image. It was cut from by no human hand. And it comes and it crushes the feet of this enormous statue, causing the whole thing to break down and disintegrate into dust and get blown away. That's, that was the content of the dream. Now, Daniel provides the interpretation, and he says that the head of gold and all of its uh, uh, illustriousness uh, and referred to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of Babylon, and that the other... Uh, components there of the image referred to subsequent kingdoms that would come after him, but all of them would be conquered by another kingdom, a kingdom that would never end, that would never be left to other people, that would never be shaken, and that was supernatural. And then on the heels of that, we get a promotion. Daniel is promoted, and he does his friends a solid, or so it seems, because as a result of Daniel's promotion, they get into this problem right here. It's like God planned it that way, it seems. Daniel made a request to the king, verse 49, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Daniel is shockingly absent from this story. When you read this story, surely you've got to ask, where on earth is Daniel? Where on earth is Daniel? But I will suggest that Daniel is, at least from the standpoint of narrative, getting out of the way here because Daniel was just an instrument. 
And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't need Daniel. You know who they need? They need the God who reveals mysteries. And that is exactly what we see in this text. Nebuchadnezzar, after having this dream of an image, verse 1 says that he makes an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits uh, and its breadth 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. A couple of things to point out here. First, the statue is not of Nebuchadnezzar. A lot of people get that wrong. Statue is not of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego later, they don't understand bowing down to it to have been worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. They say, well, not sir, you will not worship your gods. So it is not a, a, a picture of him. as it, They didn't understand it to be worshiping Nebuchadnezzar, at least not directly, but it's something about worshiping and joining in on worship Babylonian and gods, particularly Nebuchadnezzar's gods. And also, uh, the, because of the description, the, the height is 10 times the width. It would have been a telephone pole version of Nebuchadnezzar. It would be very. It would be proportions that you would not represent a human in. So the, the statue is not of him, but it's also not the image from the dream, right? It's not the image from the dream, or it would have been made of all of the the different elements. Instead, what is it made of? It's just made of the gold that signified Nebuchadnezzar. It certainly seems as though Nebuchadnezzar has just been told that his kingdom is going to come to an end, represented by the gold. But it seems like he's going to celebrate the day as long as it's his. And so what does he do? He takes the part of that dream that represents him, his kingdom, his glory, and he builds this massive image, 60 by six cubits. A cubit was about 18 inches. They reckoned it uh, different sizes at the time, but it's about 18 inches. So we're talking uh, uh, nine feet wide by 90 feet tall. I mean, even if that was made of mud, it would be impressive. Now that's an enormous structure. It's an enormous structure. But Nebuchadnezzar apparently tapped into the tax revenue and perhaps the temple treasury to make this thing gratuitous and gaudy and gold. And then he set it up, a phrase that if you're an underliner or a highlighter in your Bible, and if you're like, oh, I can't bring myself to do that, it's okay. But if you're a highlighter or underliner, I want you to underline how many times the author uses set up, set up in the first 18 verses. It is said over and over and over to make it clear that this is all a facade that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. The whole thing's a setup, frankly. They set it up on the plain of Dura. We don't know where that is, but we know it was a plain, and we know it was in full view of many people. That seems to be the idea, that people could watch this thing going up from a distance even because of how it was situated and go, whoa, what on earth is that? Just like you, when you go by on the road and you see some, a building going up and there's not a sign identifying what it is, you're like, man, what, what are they building there? Well, same thing except an enormous golden statue. And of course, such a project has to be capped off with an over-the-top dedication ceremony, with an, an accompaninglyly over-the-top invite list and the, the, that is, the, the repetition here is going to continue to present the whole thing as a big charade. If it sounded repetitious when it was read, it's because it is. 
it's supposed to sound ridiculous and it's supposed to sound extensive because that's what this story is. Listen to this. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. Hold on, wait a second. That last one right there, that included all the ones before it. And all the officials. It's like, okay, you could have just said that one, right? No. And all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. And then, verse 3, and then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and again, all the officials gathered. Basically, they came together. They gathered in front of this massive, massive statue, this massive image. And so as they're all standing there, the herald steps up and he announces a command. He announces a command that it's not entirely clear people signed up for. You show up to a dedication, you get told to worship something. Eh, You know, it's not clear that that's a, they knew exactly what they were getting into. Nevertheless, such things were more common then than certainly they are now. So maybe they knew, but it isn't clear. And so here's what the Herald says. He says, in a moment, we're going to strike up the band. And here's what happens when we strike up the band. And then we're going to, go, actually, before we get to that, we get the equally ridiculous description of the band there on the plane. When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There it is again. That He has set up. You got called, invited to the dedication. Now you're commanded when the band plays, you are to bow down and worship. What happens if you had a bad back, suffered from patella tendonitis, or otherwise were not inclined to worship the golden Gilbert? Well, the herald says that there is one sentence for you. Whoever does not fall down, verse 6, and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And I mean, if you're an, if you're an attendee here, you don't want to end up crispy. What do you do? Well, you do exactly what everyone did. And you get one last description here. Therefore, as soon as the folks heard this, the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He set it up. That's how it worked. And that, that setup there is grounds the rest of the story, gives us the background here. In verse 8, we learn that there are some jealous Chaldeans. Now, usually that refers to the kind of just Babylon and other parts of the Bible, the Chaldeans just kind of refer to Babylonians. But here, if you remember in chapter 2, the Chaldeans were that particular class of wise men who took the first crack at trying to uh, interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. They did so unsuccessfully. But they would have known Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would have known the position that they achieved because of their buddy Daniel, who did in fact interpret the dream. And so they're jealous. They see an opportunity to take advantage of a theological conviction of a few of the provincial leaders. That's exactly what they do with flattering words. They come in, oh king, live forever, verse 9, and they rehash the commands and the consequences. You remember this is what you said and this is what's going to happen, right? 
But then they turned their guns to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego explicitly. They say in verse 12, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they just say three things. They pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image uh, that you have set up. They pay no attention to you. They disregard you. What you say doesn't matter to them, at least in this area. They disregard you in this context. They do not serve your gods alongside their own. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't asking anyone to give up their gods. He was just saying, add mine to your list. He said, they don't do that. And they do not obey your command to worship the golden image that you set up. They're not bowing down. And as we have come to expect, he is furious and enraged because that's what this man does. He gets angry. All right? He's a very deeply insecure man. He is enraged and he commands that they be brought before him. He commands that they be brought before him for a second and last chance. It's what he said. There is, by the way, an odd kind of kindness here, certainly owing, you would think, to their position. I mean, they don't go immediately into the fiery furnace. They do have an opportunity to change their ways, avoid the flames. Do they? No, they do not. He has them brought in and he says, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? It's like, surely not. I, mean, I must have misheard that from these, these people. Surely they're unreliable witnesses. If you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. Now, by the way, that well and good is not there in the Hebrew, but it is a good, it, it does help us understand the conditional. It is, he's saying something like, all right, if you want to do this, then you won't have the consequences. That's what the well and good, that is supplied in the English. But it gives the sense here. If you are ready to do this, you will not have to go into the furnace. But, and here's the contrast, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And then he adds a jab at the end. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You know, <laughs> If you're just if you're wondering how short lived this king's memory is, or thinking like, wait a second, we've been down this road before, <laughs> you're not wrong. In fact, there is almost a monotonous, in one sense, uh, repetition in the book of Daniel. The details change, but it's like the same core thing keeps happening. I was, you know, as an illustration, I, when I was a kid, I was into martial arts. In one sense, I still enjoy, you know, casual fan, I guess, but I loved Jean Claude Van Damme movies. Okay, but I was listening to some guy make fun of them the other day in his best uh, '90s movie previews voice. He's like, "John Claude Van Damme is back in the same movie you've seen over and over and over again." And those of you who have seen the Jean Claude Van Damme movies, like you know exactly uh, what I'm talking about. Same, we watched the same thing with Jurassic Park movies. We watched the recent Dominion one. Here are the dinosaurs back one more time in this place that no one was ever going to go again. But there's some reason they have to. The, the, the narrative in Daniel uh, develops a bit like this. It's supposed to be absurd. It's supposed to show the sinfulness of this man and the greatness of God. The repetition is real, but it's, it's very intentional. 
It's very intentional. Now, after Nebuchadnezzar says this, it's not clear whether they were supposed to sit there and wait for the next installment of the orchestra playing, or whether he was going to signal them to strike up the band, or that it was just as you go on about life from now on, if you'll agree to do this. We don't know the exact details, but it actually doesn't matter because they don't give him the time of day. And when we get to 16 through 7, excuse me, 16 through 18, even how the, the, the story is structured chiastically, uh, it means that it kind of, uh, there, there's, a, there's a parallelism and it kind of uh, goes down to a center point in the story. And then there are similarities coming back out of it. You, this is the center of the story right here. This confession, this defiant reply more accurately. They say in verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Won't do it. And predictably... What is Nebuchadnezzar? Filled with fury, verse 19. Of course, because Nebuchadnezzar is a guy who just gets angry. And the expression of his face was changed against them, meaning he had a different countenance now reflecting that anger. And he continues the -the over-the-topness here. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated because regular flames aren't enough to incinerate someone. He says, well, make it hotter and hotter. And there was no one who was like, how do we know with no modern instruments if it's like seven times hot? Just make it really hot. I want it so hot in there that it's unbelievably hot. This picture of this man who is just losing it. Okay? Who's losing it. He doesn't have to have this to accomplish his purposes. It's just venting in this rage. And in fact, he orders some of his mighty some of the mighty men of his army, some of his best warriors to come and take these young men and cast them into the fiery furnace. That's like getting Delta Force Rangers to escort some kid to detention in high school. I mean, it's just it's it's it's, it's ludicrous. You don't need this. Make it seven times hotter and get the Delta Force people in here and get them into the furnace. Whole thing's absurd. So what happens? Well, these men, verse 21, they were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. In other words, there wasn't like a time to go get changed, you know, say goodbye, It was tunic, hat, and all, bound up, tossed in. But because of the king's gratuitous demands on the level of heat there, in the the furnace, some of the the, the mighty warriors actually died accomplishing putting putting them in there. Presumably their clothes caught fire and they became human torches outside the furnace. That's what it says. Because the king's order, verse 22, was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men. So he's lost some of his best warriors already because of how he's chosen to do this in this childish way. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound 
into the burning fire furnace. It's the end of scene two. What's going to happen? I don't know. But I keep reading. I imagine that the space between verse 23 and 24 must have been an awkward moment. Because at that point, I have to imagine that given these men were tied up, and they were thrown in, and they fell down, I mean, I guess the only thing that you're waiting for is to hear agonizing screams. And I don't know what else you'd be waiting for. Bound men who, are, who, have, been, who have fallen over in here. And even that for a very short while. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't hear those things. In fact, he hears nothing at all. No, he actually notices something astonishing amidst the flames. And by the way, we don't know how he saw in. It's a fair question to ask of the text. You ever wonder, how do you see in there? You know, and you've seen depictions of this furnace. No one knows exactly what it was like. Some people thought it was in the ground, like a lime uh, kind of furnace. I don't, because it mentions a door, I don't think that's the case. Uh, some people have tried to reconstruct it. The one that you've seen kind of probably depicted in Sunday school class, like a big hole, kind of looks like a cave or something, and there's fire in the cave. We, we don't know. Uh, the, the point is, uh, I read three or four different versions of what it could have possibly looked like. We don't know. It doesn't matter. He could see in there, okay? And when he saw in there, he was, he saw something that, that astonished him, so much so that he got up in haste. That's what verse 24 says. And he asked his counselors, did we not just throw three men bound into the fire? And they say, yeah, that's exactly what we did. We just we bound them up. We, we all saw that with their hat. They all had their hats on too. And we bound them and threw them in there, three. And then he answered and said, verse 25, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And there's, there's something different about this fourth guy. He is like a son of the gods in there with them. You might guess that there is a ton of speculation about the particular identity of the fourth man. Unfortunately, I have to confess that that's all it is, because the text just doesn't say. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is going to give his interpretation, but surely we're not going to let a pagan polytheist do our theology and uh, interpretation for us. Was it a theophany, an appearance of God, you know, like we have seen in the Old Testament? Was it a Christophany, particularly a, a pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son? Was it, in fact, an angel? We just don't know. But don't let that distract you from the main point. The point is this, that the presence of the one whose appearance is like the sons of God was in the fire with these men. And it was that that preserved them. It preserved the presence of however God manifested himself right then. In the fire was how they were preserved. And so what does he do? He issues the only command that they actually obey. <laughs> he issues the only command. He goes close to the furnace door, verse 26, and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. 
Come out and come here. He just couldn't believe it. Instead of four men, three men, he saw again, four. They were walking, not falling over. They weren't even touched by the flame. He's got to see this with his own eyes, and that's exactly what they do. It says they came out from the fire. Now, apparently, there is a small gathering of officials waiting for them. And I suppose that's because if you're going to make an example out of someone, you have to do have more than just a handful of ashes uh, to present. And therefore, you need a live audience for the incineration, for the deterrent to actually have effect. And so there they were, and they get in on the post-furnace examination. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. They're all huddled around and saw that the fire had not any power over the body of those men. In fact, the hair of their heads were not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. They'd just been in a furnace. They don't even smell like they've been standing next to someone smoking a cigarette. How did that happen? How could they come out like this? His hat's still on. Their clothes didn't even catch fire. They didn't lose a hair. This calls us to provide an answer to the question this story begs us to ask. Here's the question. Did God deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace? Depends what you mean. They certainly were humiliated. They were truly bound up. They were truly tied up in front of all the officials. And they were truly tossed in the furnace. So they weren't preserved out of the furnace. But they were preserved through the furnace. They were preserved in and through the furnace because of the grace of the fourth man. Because God met them in the furnace And he delivered them out of the furnace in the sense that they emerged from it. But not in the sense that they were preserved from it altogether. That's a good word for us. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? He blesses, very similar to the end of chapter 2. He gives a praise of sorts. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel. So there's Neb's interpretation. Um, and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. He yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. He blesses God, but then he actually commends their resilience. He's impressed. He's impressed that they decided to disobey a king that was going to incinerate them and indeed attempted to do so in order to be faithful to their god. And as a result, to complete the antics of the story, Nebuchadnezzar issues a decree against speaking against God with, of course, consequences for disobedience. What are those consequences? If you recall from chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, they're the same consequences of the folks who, couldn't, who, who, who would have been the consequences of the people who couldn't interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I make a decree, verse 29, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then, to continue the similarities, promotion. Another promotion. 
How far up can these guys go? What's the org chart in Babylon look like? And how many? There it is. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Certainly, what he felt was a dignifying act was, I'm sure, an eye roller for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So how will Nebuchadnezzar's perspectives change? How will his interaction with Daniel transform? How much longer will his kingdom endure? You have to come back next time, hear the next next part of the story. But as we turn to singing Zion's songs in a foreign land, I want to bring to mind our two application questions for responsible Old Testament application. What does this show us about man that requires redemption in Christ? And what does it tell us about God who provides redemption in Christ? The first thing that we see, or at least one prominent thing that we see, is change that doesn't last. We see a feature common to man. Praise. Make some genuine changes. Put some branches, genuinely put some new things in place. But it's all modifications that don't last and don't accomplish anything lasting because they're not rooted in any genuine change of heart, as we will unfortunately come to see even further. Notice that when he praises him, he doesn't identify as his God. He praises him as the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Y'all's God. Y'all's God won this one. Whoa, man, he's a rescue. He rescued No one can rescue quite like that. But being impressed, being impressed with God is not the same thing with having a renewed heart or repentance towards God. Being impressed or even shaken or even having some new convictions does not mean being transformed and living a new life. And sadly, we've probably all seen this before. Friends, family, Usually it's when some kind of crisis strikes. You think, oh wow, this is it. They're really turning things around. They're really making some some change. Oh, I'm hopeful. It seems to me like they're close to repenting and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it's like, well, what happened? Fizzles out. Disappointment. John Owen provides a captivating illustration for the phenomena we see of change that does not last. Listen to him and pardon some of his antiquated English. As a traveler in his way meeting with a violent storm of thunder and rain immediately turns out of his way to some house or tree for his shelter, but yet this causeth him not to give over his journey. So soon as the storm is over, he returns to his way and progress again. So it is with man in bondage to sin. They are in a course of pursuing their lusts. The law meets with them in a storm of thunder and lightning from heaven, terrifies and hinders them in their way. This turns them for a season out of their course. They will run to prayer or amendment of life for some shelter from the storm of wrath, which is feared coming upon their consciences. 
But is their course stopped? Are their principles altered? Not at all. So soon as the storm is over, so that they begin to wear out that sense and terror that was upon them, they return to their former course in the service of sin again. So I want you to hear this. It is very possible to make real change, even for the better, without taking one step closer to Jesus. You can genuinely go from a drug-addicted, wife-beating workaholic on your way to hell to a sober, non-wife-beater with a great work-life balance still on your way to hell. Not all change for the better requires a new heart in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There are plenty of so-called secular change programs. Nebuchadnezzar's sinful nature and his resulting sin, it clarifies for us what we already know, that only God's special work of calling people out of darkness and transforming their hearts provides lasting, real change. Not his miracles. Not wonders. Wonders is not enough to change the human heart. Not tragedy. Not your family falling apart. Not ethereal sounding music or a great church production or dazzling preaching. God must work specifically and directly. Without which, no one will have any desire to repent and believe. In fact, remember the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16? Lazarus uh, so dies and he's carried to Abraham's bosom. The rich man who had his things in life is there languishing in the flame. And he calls out uh, to Abraham there. And he says, you know, Abraham, uh, can I come over to that side? He says, no, there's a cavern set here. No one can cross. He says, well, can you at least send Lazarus back to, I have five brothers. Can you send him back and tell them? And, they, and then he says, well, they've got Moses in the law. You know, they, can, they can listen to Moses in the law. He says, no, 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 no. No, no, no. If someone comes to him from the dead, then they will believe. And what does Abraham say? No. He says, even if someone comes to them from the dead, they will not believe. So, just to help us feel that one, if someone walked around this, uh, whatever this is, partition here, right? And walked up here in the middle of me preaching, someone who we all knew to be dead, There they are, raised to life. That would not cause a single sinner in and of itself to repent and believe the gospel. They will not be convinced. They might adopt different beliefs. Maybe they move from a naturalistic world to, to a supernatural worldview. Maybe they show up to church more. Because there's a, uh, maybe they come here more often to, in the hopes of seeing another person uh, walk in, r- risen from the dead. Who knows? But none of that means bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. None of it means that. So here's the question we all have to ask ourselves. Have we been changed or have we merely made changes? Have we been changed or have we merely made changes like Nebuchadnezzar. Only one lasts and only one leads to life.
That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see takes us to the center of the passage there. Oz Guinness gives an account of one of the efforts to kind of eradicate religious belief in the former Soviet Union. And he gives an account of KGB soldiers that were you know, told to go into churches on Sunday morning. And he talks of this one agent, and I don't know how he got this information, but he's a reliable guy. I don't think he's making it up. He says, one such agent was struck by the deep devotion of an older woman who was kissing the feet of a life-size carving of Christ on the cross. Clearly not a Baptist church. Okay. Let's continue on with the illustration. Okay. He asked her, Babushka, which is grandmother, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of our great communist party? She said, why, of course, but only if you crucify him first. <laughs> With similarly sharp words of defiance, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will have nothing to do with this king's blasphemous request to violate the first commandment. Notice the elements in this reply because this is an incredible template for living life before God. Verse 17 if this be so, this decree, the God whom we serve, critical, by the way, not the God we pray to for to bail me out in very tough times like a genie in the sky. The God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He is able. But then they go on. Listen, they go on. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He will deliver us. Hold on, wait. Now all of a sudden it sounds like something was maybe revealed to them. It sounds like maybe they received a dream or something. How, how do they know that? We know he's able to deliver. They go the next step. Now he's going to deliver. But in the very next breath we realize it's, it's not that they received some vision or dream. But if not. But if not. How does but if not follow from he is doing this? He is willing. He will deliver us. But if not. Let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The, this is the tension that we must embrace in disposition as we live life before God. He is able he is willing, but if he is not willing, we will be faithful. If we're honest, we took a poll. Probably most of us are far more comfortable with the theological statement at the beginning, kind of the first piece of bread, he is able. The other piece of bread, about our practice before God, if not, we'll be faithful. It's like, okay, I can affirm that. But then the he is willing. So, whoa, hold on wait a second. He is willing. How do I know if God is willing? I, I, I can't, I'm not a predictor of the future. I can pray he is able. And I can pray if he's not able, then it'll be something. But, but what about the he is willing piece? It doesn't fit, if we're honest, into a lot of our prayer lives, into the way that we think about things. 
But I would suggest that the kind of knowledge that he is suggesting, uh, that they are putting forth here, is not a, a, a claim about their ability to predict the future, that they've been uh, given some kind of special insight. It is their knowledge of God's disposition of favor and preservation and power and goodness towards them. It's a kind of categorical belief. God is a deliverer. Guess what you expect deliverers to do? Deliver. Deliverers deliver. That's what they do. So of course, of course God is able to, but I'm expecting Him to work. I suspect that the lack of this middle category, the expectation that God will work because of the kind of God He is, the lack of that is to blame for prayer lives and faiths that are otherwise not as bold or nearly as powerful as they could be. It's almost like in our it's almost like we are so hostage to our doctrine of God and not wanting to even believe appear foolish in the quiet of our own heart by entertaining unsafe belief about what will happen. That we don't pray and live expecting God to show up at all. We pray prayers about God's ability. And then if it's not, this will happen. But we don't put the middle piece in there. There is no middle piece because we're because everyone's internal dialogue is this. Well, I don't know what he's willing to do. Well, neither were they. You can pray both. That's the whole reason this template's so powerful. He's willing. But if he's not willing, this. It sounds like there's a tension there. It is, but it's not, it's not a tension in practice that should cause us problems. I know God is able. I can expect Him to do the kinds of things that I know He loves to do. And if He doesn't, I will still be faithful. So here, here's how, how do you think about this? Somewhere in between wishing and certainty about what's going to happen. Wishing, certainty, somewhere in between that is grounded expectation. Somewhere between wishing and infallibly uttering the future is eager expectation and a disposition of God is going to work. Would you consider how you might add a healthy dose of grounded expectation for God to work in your life and the lives of those around you. And don't be afraid of, quote, getting it wrong. You don't need to be afraid of that. He is able. He is willing. I know He's willing. And if He's not willing, we will be faithful. If you do so, you'll have a more powerful faith and our church will be blessed by it. Let's pray. Oh God, we see how you work in the hearts and minds of kings and young men and how you orchestrate things to your purposes according to your great power and wisdom. God, we pray that you would give us Moses, uh, boldness, excuse me, of someone like Moses who after everything had seen as the what appears to be the audacity to say, show me your glory. 
Show me your glory. Why? Because God had already done it so many times. He expected it. Lord, we be a people who live in expectation of you working instead of just knowing that you're able and resigning ourselves to fatalistic conditional statements. Help us live in power. Pray that you would find the pockets of our heart that struggle to believe and doubt simply because there are things that we have prayed for that have not come to pass. We realize that and we say, how do we square this with an expectation? And so, Lord, my prayer is that right here in the middle of this story, as we're brothers and sisters across this room, would meditate, would think about where, where is the place in my life where eager expectation and a categorical confidence could be introduced that would increase my impact for the kingdom of God. Bless those around me. Lord, thank you for Jesus who gives us the power to conquer sin. Thank you for the resurrection that does give us certainty that those in Christ will only die once. We're thankful for that hope. Would you nurture us in it? In the name of Jesus.